future of technology that unfolds unchecked is actually really problematic. We need to be having conversations about power, morality, ethics, whether there are ways of computation unfolding that aren't just about war and aiming machinery. Welcome to the Amplifying Cognition podcast, formerly the Thriving on Overload podcast. I am Ross Dawson, a futurist and entrepreneur fascinated by the unlimited potential of the human mind. Each week, I speak to incredible people who are working on how we can get to next-level thinking, sense-making, and decision-making so we can keep ahead in an accelerating world. My guests share how they amplify their productivity, the success of organizations, and the potential of humanity by using an array of technologies, including AI, innovative processes, and sometimes simple everyday practices. I do this podcast to learn. I learn so much from every guest I speak to, and I'm sure you will too. If you are intent on amplifying your cognition, simply go to amplifyingcognition.com to access a trove of useful resources, including the Humans Plus AI learning community, resources and downloads from my book, Thriving on Overload, the Thought Weaver app, which allows you to interface more effectively with AI, transcripts from all of our podcast episodes, and far more. That's amplifyingcognition.com. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe to hear more and help others to find the podcast by liking or sharing. It makes a massive difference, so thank you. On this episode, we learn from Genevieve Bell. Genevieve is Distinguished Professor at Australian National University and Director of the School of Cybernetics and the 3AI Autonomy Agency and Assurance Institute at the university. Her many, many roles and honors include Senior Fellow at Intel, SRI International Engelbart Distinguished Fellow, Non-Executive Director of the Commonwealth Bank of Australia Board, and an Officer of the Order of Australia. You can find more on her work at cybernetics.anu.edu.au. In this episode, Genevieve shares insights on the history and the contemporary relevance of cybernetics, the origins of AI and how that shaped the space today, the frameworks for the past, present, and future they use at the university, decolonizing AI, and far more. This is a very deep session, so keep listening to learn from Genevieve's wonderful insights. Genevieve, it's a delight to have you on the show. It's really great to be here, Ross, and I brought my coffee. Very important uh, at this time of the morning. Absolutely. So you are director of a new School of Cybernetics at the Australian National University. So please tell us, what is cybernetics? (laughs) It's like a, you're doing a thing, discuss. So I'm the inaugural director of the School of Cybernetics here at the Australian National University. First new school the university started in about 40 years. And I have to say upside, downside of that is upside, it's been so long no one remembers how to do it. Downside, it's been so long no one remembers how to do it. (laughs) So there's something about starting something new that's always incredibly appealing to me. Uh, And of course, the school is new, the idea isn't. So what's cybernetics and why should you care? Well, cybernetics has lots of histories, but the one I think is really important is one that starts in the United States in the 1940s. And it starts with a whole collection of conversations that were bubbling along in the war, World War II period, in the immediate aftermath of World War II. And in that period, there was, in addition to all the complexities and horror that was World War II, there were also conversations going on about what is the role of technology in all of that? And what does it mean to think about increasingly complex 
technological objects. Of course, part of what's happening in World War II is the rise of computing, sort of an ancestor to the computing we know now, where we're in this transition where computers are stopping being people who do maths and starting to become machines that do maths and machines that can do it much faster, but in ways that are more energy intensive, more human labor intensive, that are quite sort of large and where people are desperately trying to find the right language to describe what these computational objects will be, right? Like, what are they going to be? Because, of course, we're not talking about the slick machines that you and I are talking via. We're talking about things that were the size of multiple shipping containers and that they were loud and smelly. I love the idea that computers smelled. <laughs> and, you know, they were really mechanical and they required a lot of labor. And people were trying to sort of find a way to talk about all of that because talking about them as calculators didn't really get it done. And it certainly didn't encapsulate the possibility. And you have all kinds of people in the UK, the US, a little bit in Europe who start talking about these things as brains. So giant brains, electronic brains, 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 basically. And as a result of that, there's this really interesting intersection of conversations about cognition, about sentience, about intelligence, about learning, about thinking, and about these thinking, computing, brain machines, and all those conversations start to come together. And it's probably because of the people who were having them, right? And they all knew each other. They're all moving in similar kinds of circles around universities, around various government agencies. And there are conferences going on because that hasn't changed in the last 150 years. It's always a good conference to go to, and they're all going to those conferences. And there's a couple of really epic conferences happening on the east coast of the United States in the 19, sort of about 1943, 44 to about 1950. And those bring together people out of philosophy and what we would now think of as neurobiology which then was physiology, people in maths, in philosophy, in linguistics, in, in my field, anthropology. And they're really talking about how does thinking work? How does conscience work? How does sort of sentience work? And in parallel to that, of course, computers are getting more sophisticated. And one of these conversations that's going on is being funded by a philanthropic organization who are interested in interdisciplinary thinking. They didn't quite call it that, but that's what they were doing. And so they brought all these people together to talk about this intersection of thinking and being and how animals think, how humans think about what machines could do. And it's got all these incredibly clunky names, but all these amazing people are there. You know, so Gregory Bateson, Margaret Mead, amazing anthropologist, Richard Northrop, who's a philosopher at, um, at Harvard or Yale, Yale, I think, and other kinds of, you know, people, McCulloch, Pitt, so people who are sort of on the edges of what we would now think of computing. And into that morass, unexpectedly, a book is published. And it's unexpected because this book becomes a New York Times bestseller. And that's great, except that it's full of mathematics. And mathematics books don't usually become New York Times bestsellers, but this one does. It's 160 pages. It is dense and it has equations on many of those pages. And the thing that captures everyone's attention is the name of the book. Because the book is called Cybernetics. And cybernetics was a word that didn't really exist up until that point in English. The author of this book, a man named Norbert Wiener, who is a mathematician, a philosopher, kind of a difficult human being. I think he'd had a fairly complicated life. But it's, you know, what classical would call him a polymath now. But at the time, he was definitely kind of roaming intellectually fairly widely. Has a theory about the world. <laughs> He's really interested in what's going to happen as these thinking machines, these computers get more and more powerful. 
and how humans are going to relate to them and what's going to be the nature of that relationship. And importantly, how could you theorize it mathematically? And if you could, where would that get you? And he coins the phrase cybernetics to be the study of the communication between computational objects and human beings, or in his language, actually, the study of the relationship between the machine and the animal. And he's really interested in how we would think about that. And of course, there isn't a word for that in the 1940s. How on earth would you talk about computers? Because we can barely call them that. And the relationship with humans, we have, there's a language sort of a blankness. And the language he goes back to is Greek. Now, Greek for him, he learnt Greek as a little boy. His dad was a linguist and insisted that Norbert learn all kinds of languages, so he read Greek as a child. And the word he searches for in Greek and the word he ends up pulling through into the 20th century is this word kybernets, which means steering, and steering specifically of a boat. And I imagine he's thinking of a small boat because of where it's in Greek mythology, but the kind of boat where you can feel the water through the edges of the boat where you can see the water everywhere where as you adjust the rudder you know the boat is moving and that sort of interplay between you the boat and the water is a very clear system right and where you and the boat and what it means to navigate and steer and nudge are a very clear feedback loop which is what he was also really interested in and that word kybernets has this second meaning which i'm sure he was also playing on which is about to govern sort of govern systems. And so somewhere in his mind, he's managed to find this word that doesn't sit well in English, to steer and to govern, specifically of systems, and particularly of systems that are human and something else. And from that Greek, kybernets, he creates the word cybernetics. So cybernetics, 1940s, right? Book comes out, national bestseller, attracts everyone's attention, and it becomes a shorthand for talking about the future of computing and specifically the future of computing with humans. So in the 21st century, if you start to think to yourself, we desperately need to have a different set of conversations about the world we are building, about who we are with, through, and around machinery, about what it means to have AI in our lives, about how we want to think about us and these computational objects, and how we want to think about the environment in which we find ourselves literally both the physical world, but the more broadly put the kind of, you know, environmental and ecosystem. And you want a word to describe all of that. We looked around and my, my colleagues and I and went, oh, look, <laughs> that word from the 1900s. We should bring that forward because that word still works. And so that's how we became a school of cybernetics. So the too long don't read version of that is cybernetics is a word borrowed from the Greek to describe and theorize the relationship between humans and computational objects where the ecosystem is important. Or put another another way, cybernetics is a way of talking about a complex dynamic system with humans, computation, and environment at its core. That that's fantastic. You know, it's important we have the reference frame for where we are today. And as you say, it's finding finding what we've got already in order to be able to to use that. And so there's a lot of my lineage or of thinking is is tied into that. So Gregory Bateson is one of the my most influential people. Um, Buckminster Fuller actually sort of I think his idea of the trim tab is actually uh, deeply tied to the <laughs> idea of uh, you know the steering. yeah he's tied up in these conversations too. So once you start unpicking this um, sort of moment that gets labelled as cybernetics and all the people that are involved in that conversation and 
the Macy's conferences that get rebranded from their interminably long name to just the Macy's conference on cybernetics. Everyone turns up in that conversation in the first half of the 20th century. You have, you know, Veneva Bush, who goes on to, you know, be DARPA and, you know, underlying DARPA and the Memex machine, Licklider, who does run DARPA, Von Neumann, who's, of course, building the ENIAC. You and I both know Bateson, absolutely, but Von Forster. And then and then it just goes on to be the wellspring of, like, almost everything. Unpick anything interesting, as far as I'm concerned, in the second half of the 20th century, and there's some cybernetician lurking in the background. You've got, you know, um, Stafford Beer, who gives us all the organisational development stuff and who also then profoundly influences Brian Eno and then in turn Bowie and Talking Heads and Craftworks and that whole genealogy. And, you know, Eno talks about being influenced by cybernetics, which is crazy and fabulous. You've got the branch that springs out of Silicon Valley, you know, which is the one in some ways I'm closest to, which is, you know, Bateson, but then also Stuart Brand, Terry Wedegren, the Systems and Symbols program at Stanford, uh, well, frankly, the internet, <laughs> Doug Engelbart at SRI, all those kind of pieces. You've got other branches that turn up through art with people like Jaisha Reichart and then all of the um, early digital and animated art. You've got multiple other sort of tangents that run through it. Buckminster is absolutely one. In American anthropology, it's the shift from uh, the kind of Boazian school of anthropology. You know, culture is just a list of things to culture as a system or, you know, as Geertz would say, you know, a web of meaning, a web of significance in which we are suspended. It's very cybernetic. And you just start to realise that it's through all of these things. And importantly for you and I, also, all the protagonists who turn up in 1956 at Dartmouth at the AI conference are actually influenced by the cybernetics conference. And some of them have been there. Shannon, of course, Claude Shannon, father of information theory, is also in the Macy's conferences. Uh, there's this very clear sense of um, you can't have AI without having had cybernetics first, is that you can't have a notion of wanting to theorise about the future of computing without having had this prior conversation. And so for me, there's something about wanting to reassert that history and the intention of that particular collection of, of voices, because there's also, there's a politic to all of it too, right? They're very clear in those conferences in the late 1940s that a future of technology that unfolds unchecked is actually really problematic and that we need to be having conversations about power, morality, ethics, that we need to be thinking about whether there are ways of computation unfolding that aren't just about war and aiming machinery and that what all of those would look like. So about the, this idea of cybernetics, which is, as you say, influenced so much, including the technology domain, the arts, the uh, systems dynamics, of course, and systems thinking, uh, and that we, which ultimately cybernetics is a systems perspective. Uh, you know, the most the, the most comprehensive system perspective you can have. I just say the the uh, what's alive, what's not alive, and how those all fit together. So that brings us to 2023, where we have a blossoming of AI and extraordinary possibilities. And I always think of it in the perspective of you know humans are inventors, and we have invented incredible machines now, where we have a relationship with them, all kinds of different relationships out of which these systems flow. So, so today we have many choices, perspectives, uh, ways of thinking, um, you know, initiatives with uh, AI and humans. And so, I'd love to, 
you know, hear about what your work is now, what the School of Cybernetics is doing to help frame these conversations and work in a, in a positive direction? Oh, look, it's such a good question, Ross. Um, I think when we start to approach these conversations, we really bring three very different um, techniques to bear as we sort of want to imagine how we should encounter the 21st century. One of them is really shaped by where we find ourselves. So the Australian National University has this distinctive mission. So a university created by a federal government at, at about almost the same time as the Macy's conferences are unfolding with a very clear sense that it was a university designed to build capacity and capability. And that was all about how do we equip people to handle the world in which they find themselves now, not just backward looking, but forward looking. And so in some ways, part of the mission of this school is to build capability and capacity. And I sort of believe you have to do that in lots of different ways, right? There are some of the classic tools, go research the thing. <laughs> because for me, there's the go teach it. And then there's certainly the go engage with the world and bring a different conversation to bear. So for us, I think step one of this school is that it really is about critical thinking and critical doing. And so for me, that sense of how do you engage to build capability and capacity, I know that sounds like total word salad for the 21st century, but really important to us. And so that means we have multiple education programs ongoing. We have a tiny master's program that has about 15 to 20 students a year. It's cohort driven. It's designed to be painfully interdisciplinary. <laughs> so people come from really different places and different lived experiences. And right about now, they hate us desperately. August, September is always bad because it's suddenly like, oh, God, that's such a lot you're making us think and do. But that's really about how do we create a cohort of people who have a different set of tools and a different way of talking. Same with the PhD program. But I also know you can't expect everyone to come to a university and spend a year or three years here. So there's a little bit about how do we take what we know and push it out into the world in different kinds of formats. So come spend a day with us. We'll come spend a day with you. Are there shorter kinds of conversations? But that piece where it's always about how do you equip people with a critical set of questions, a framework, a way of engaging actively with the present and the future for me feels like hugely important. Second piece is, well, what what would the nature of those questions be? <laughs> like, where do they kind of come from, right? First set of them, I think, are historic questions. I think it's hugely important to know where something comes from and to know what was happening at that moment in time. Things always have a history and a backstory, and knowing who those people were and what was in their heads is hugely useful to remind yourself that these things also inevitably have a politic. <laughs> they tend to have a point of view, and being able to get your hands around that's hugely useful. So we teach our students and ourselves to ask the kind of, where did it come from and why was it that set of questions? The second set are about how do you critically interrogate it in the present? So how do you think about what makes something a system now? And you're right, cybernetics is a systems approach, and we are very much vested in and invested in thinking about things as systems. I tend to think that the um, 21st century is going to be the, the century of systems, right? If the 20th century was about nation states and economies, I tend to think we still have to talk about those. We also have to talk about systems more broadly as an analytic lens, as a way of making sense of and seeing the world. When you and I probably both like you know, Scott's on seeing seeing like a state, but I think it's a bit like seeing like a system that feels really important at the moment for me and an under an underserved skill. So ask about history, 
see the world as systems in the present. And then I think the future looking piece, because I also believe that's really important, is I think we have a responsibility to create a set of narratives about the future that feel more hopeful than the present and more hopeful both in an optimistic, not naive sense, but in a sense where we can see it, see toward and start telling stories about a future or futures that are more hopeful, more just, more sustainable, more fair, more equitable, and then make sure that those stories become things that guide us in the present so that we make different kinds of choices now in order to do that. So a school that's really invested in building capability, a school that has a set of approaches, historic, present, future set of approaches. And then I think a piece about feeling like it's not just about capability and questions, but it's also about where do you stand and what are the kind of the things that you want to be interested in. And so for us, that's meant an abiding interest in the current technological apparatus. So absolutely AI, but also water systems, um, sort of digital systems more broadly. So I've been doing something on the history of telegraphy because I'm interested in the first systems that create the world we move in today. We're just finishing up some stuff looking at ideas of the metaverse and the virtual we have projects going on looking at the relationships with robots through the lens of dance and empathy and affection. We have stuff going on, gosh, in any given day about a myriad of different things. So for me, it's those sort of three pieces, right? You know, where do you sort of, where do you need to turn up for us building capability? How do you do that through these different kinds of approaches? And then picking a set of places to go apply that so that it's not just abstract, but real. Very quick break to point you to AmplifyingCognition.com. You'll find a stack of resources to help you get to next level thinking, sense-making, and decision-making, including the Humans Plus AI learning community with extensive courses and events, free downloads from my book, Thriving on Overload, the Thoughtweaver app to achieve more with AI, productivity programs for individuals and companies, and far more. Now back to the show. Yeah, well, that's uh, incredibly broad-ranging. And so, but if we think about today, um, you know, the humans and technologies, you know, the technology we've created plus humans, that's the world we live in. And the you know, the many systems and untangling that so that we can have some understanding and weave a path forward. So what, one phrase that you have used, uh, which I think might inform this, is, is decolonizing AI. And I'd love to hear what that means and how this fits into this uh, conversation. Sure. So the idea of decolonization is a, it's a theoretical and pragmatic approach to various kinds of political, social, technical systems. It's an approach that has its roots oh, probably 30 or 40 years ago, coming out of various forms of critical social sciences. The idea about it was to be able to see that the colonial act, the act of, you know, either colonizing or, you know, taking over things tends to be about a profound form of power, an enactment of power, a rearrangement of bodies, literally human bodies, often political systems done with a degree of violence to it, an erasure of things that have come before, a kind of profound tidying up of things. And the colonial act is always, in this particular theoretical view, understood as being about power about a violent rearrangement of things, about an erasure of things, and about uh, assertion of and imposition of very particular kinds of order that usually flow out of the West and that flow out of very particular ideas about self, 
relationships between self and other <laughs> ideas about time and space. And so decolonization has two quite different kind of senses, right? One is what happened through the radical rejection of the colonial regime in lots of different countries over the years. So how did we reject British rule in Africa, British rule in um, uh, parts of other parts of the world, but you know, mostly Africa? Uh, how did we reject other forms of colonial rule? And then in the academic and sort of intellectual sort of space, it became a how did we reject or critically examine some of those same moves. So impositions of power, rearrangements of body, ideas that were totalizing around time and space. How do you kind of unpick those things? And then depending on which school of decolonization you're interested in, it might be about how do you read how do you read through the silences or read against the grain? So uh, do things like subaltern studies, which was, you know, people like Ranajit Guha out of India, of how did you read Indians' resistance to the British colonial rule through the British colonial documents, which portray them as being kind of senseless. But if you assume they are, in fact, senseful, how do you make sense of their activity by reading through the gaps, right? So multiple strategies inside decolonization. And in decolonizing AI, there's a couple of things you might want to do there, right? One is to be critically aware of the historical articulations of AI. So for me, that's usually about knowing two things at least. One is about what is the first constitutive documents of AI, so the grant proposal that gets written to the Rockefeller in 55, and the importance in that of the sentence that basically commences the, the project description of the conference, where oh, the sentence is something like, the study is to proceed on the basis of the conjecture that every aspect of learning or intelligence can be so precisely described that a machine can be made to simulate it. And the importance of that sentence, right, is that it's about every aspect of learning and intelligence boom, can be so precisely described that a machine can be made to simulate it. And of course, sitting in that is all sorts of things going on, right? One doesn't ever say the word human, which I always think is really interesting. Number two, it suggests that you can break those things down into small pieces. And number three is, of course, that if you can do that, you can then automate it. And so AI, the sort of AI was never a technology. It was always a research agenda. And more than a research agenda, it's a, a thought exercise or conjecture that says you can, in fact, automate thinking if you can describe it in small enough pieces, which you and I or deconstruct humans, basically. Not even humans, because humans are never mentioned in that sentence, just intelligence right, and learning. Um, and there were obviously other things that were at, at play in that moment in time. So I think, you know, one way of decolonizing AI is just to go back to the original words and say, look, it's clear this was never about a technology. This is about a research agenda and a stance that says that you can automate learning if you can describe it precisely enough, which is, of course, the classic industrialization, automation, pick, you know, Weber, Taylor, Fordism, <laughs> break it down into little, little bitsy pieces and make it into a production line. So that's interesting, right? And likewise, it's important, I think, to go back there and ask who was in the room and what were their agendas, right? And in 55, 56, the people who frame up that conjecture are, of course, Claude Shannon and Nathaniel Rochester, who are respective, respectively the basically CTO at Bell Labs, so in charge of the largest R&D shop in the US at the time, and the man who is the leading designer at IBM for mainframes. So two well-established industrial leaders at the top of their game inside the companies that are building the future in 1905. 
sorry, while my, my machine beeps at us. And then on the opposite side of that are two academics who are both postdocs. So um, uh, Minsky and McCarthy, who are just finishing up their PhDs and who have an idea about neural networks and who are looking for industry partners. And the money, of course, comes from the Rand and Rockefeller. So going back to 55, 56 and asking yourself, who is establishing AI and what do they think they're up to when they're doing it? One way of giving ourselves a different perspective about the inevitability of it in the 21st century is to say, well, actually, it's from the 50s. It's tied up with large companies who are building computers wanting to have a story about the future and academics who are looking for the next thing to go study. That's one way of saying how do you, uh, in some ways, critique its inevitability and give back some of the messiness that's sitting underneath so that you can also see where is the power being asserted and whose power is being asserted. I can see from what you're saying is that the history piece is actually really significant in being able to understand the the present. It's, you know, so I've, you know, gone back and, you know, seen a lot of that history and it's, it, it, there's many branches, of course, you know, so Engelbart, of course, took this in a different direction and uh, many others have taken more or less humanistic uh, perspectives amongst others along the, the path. So we have a, you know, a very diverse, you know, multi uh, faceted uh, aspects of what it is today, but with with roots which which come from that, and I think so. But now there is a, the, I suppose, a bit of a a beast which we can, f- you know, shift and frame to a more positive uh, future intent. But so for me, one way of thinking about how do you decolonize it, right, is to make clear where the first ideas came from and in whose interests those were serving, and then you can ask about, you know, what are the pieces that get erased there. What's missing from that conversation? What are some of the ways that, and then you you know those ones, you sort of want to go back and say, well, what are the earlier and other versions of compute, of automation? How do we go back and look at everything from the tradition of robotics in Japan and Karakuri to Islamic engineers like Al Jazeera and the Banzu brothers who are building automata over a thousand years ago? And what is the kind of their sense of things that they are doing, which is not about, you know, being so precisely described that a machine can be made to simulate it. It's much more about notions of beauty or grace or enacting ritual or pleasure. And so being able to um, unpick the logic of industrialization or capitalism or suggest there are other kinds of formulations that sit inside those ideas or other histories intensely useful or indeed to sort of say look a whole other way you could critique all of this would be not about that particular history but about what are the the work that math and statistical models do inside contemporary ai and what are the other ways you might want to approach that and how do we get past ideas about automation and machine machine simulating things to thinking about other kinds of locuses so how would you talk about responsibility instead of um, simulation? How would you talk about different kinds of ideas of not replication, but expansion? Or as you know, you sometimes talk about, you know, how do we imagine ideas of support and entanglement, not erasure and replacement? And I think, you know, all of those become other ways of unpacking that. And then, you know, I get to look to some of my extraordinary colleagues like Angie Abdillah, Mick Jade, and Tyson Yonkapur, who are starting to push in Australia on what it would mean to think about Indigenous AI, to think about 
artificial intelligence through the lenship of kinship and responsibility, not automation and replacement. And then you just start to see all these incredible other possibilities. And that's, you know, hugely hopeful and generative, not just, uh, you know, Skynet going live. Absolutely. So just... So, you know, rounding out with think that's not so, so much around amplifying cognition, but amplifying humanity, uh, which is our ability not just to think, but to, you know, be, uh, be at our best. And I'd love to hear any frames around where we can be going, what we should be doing now in order to be able to have our human technology systems be one that's, you know, amplify how humanity is at its best and create a better future? Oh, I always think that's such a good question, Ross. For me, it's a little bit about how do we make that all plural? <laughs> that sounds like a terrible cop-out, but I tend to imagine we should want multiple futures because I don't think everyone wants the same one and the cognition turns up in the same way everywhere. So there's a little bit about how do we imagine and make possible make the space for lots of different amplifications and not always reifying the human. I think, you know, there are a lot of cultures around the world where humans and the environment are a relationship that's hugely important and that the technology is sort of incidental to that or that, you know, it's not even humans as individuals but collectives that's important. So there's a little bit for me about how do we ensure in those conversations that we're talking not just about individuals but about different kinds of collectives and communities and different sorts of relationships. So I was finding that piece of the puzzle kind of wonderfully delightful. And then in terms of what are the kind of moments for the, the present that we get to do that in, look, one of the conversations I do find myself coming back to at the moment, I don't quite know what to do with, is one about how do we right-size the environmental footprint of all this technology we're talking about? I know that doesn't sound hopeful, but it does sound like it's a critical conversation we need to have. I've been really struck as the stuff around generative AI has unfolded over the last sort of 10 months now, how much more we have talked about the energy footprint of these systems than we have about anyone in the past. So I take it as a good thing, right, that we actually know as we are discussing these crazy kind of computational budgets that it's not just that the technology itself is amazing, it's that its use of energy is also kind of remarkable and not necessarily in a good way. And so there's something for me about how we have a conversation about our futures with these computational objects where we have one that is about right-sizing both the role of the computation but what we need to do to make that real. And, you know, whether that's about saying we need to push much harder on our kind of impulse that says automate everything because we should be saying, well, we could automate everything. We don't actually have enough electricity or water to make that so. So where are we going to be more selective about that? Feels to me like an interesting conversation to have about the present. And then I think you're absolutely right. How do we imagine the role of technology where it is um, infinitely more expansive than simply describing every aspect of something so precisely that a machine can be made to simulate it, right? which feels to me is like a terrible, a terrible answer. So there's something about, and it's funny because even back in the 50s, right, those guys, they're interested in art and music and will machines make art and music and how we think about that. And I'm sort of interested in how do we imagine the role of not just the computation, but the relationship between us and the computation. How do we imagine that as being generative, as being not just about efficiencies and productivities, but about other kinds of discourses? So amplifying cognition is a much lovelier way of framing a future than saying, 
productivity. We should have higher productivity because that always feels to me to just be like a, a not good answer. So there's something about how do we celebrate all the things that technology has delivered for us that we aren't so good at sort of leaning into, right? So whether that is cognition or creativity, whether it's about things that are a little less heady, I do tend to think, so I used to get asked this question, well, what's the most important technology in the 20th century? And I used to think to myself, well, I don't know. Electricity probably is the right answer. I'm sure the internet was what I was supposed to say. I inevitably ended up saying things like television or elastic. <laughs> because I was like, elastic stopped our pants from falling down and television gave us all something to do. And I think there was, it gave us all something to enjoy. I sort of, I don't want to lose in our stories we tell about the future, just some of the, um, the little pleasures in life that aren't necessarily about things as heady as cognition or creativity, but are sometimes just about being able to read a trashy novel or hang around with your friends and get nothing done. <laughs> Something about those things yeah. that feel really important too. Absolutely. Absolutely. So your work is, I think, really important at the moment in providing just a massively bigger frame than most people are taking around you know, technologies and how they're used. And uh, it's, you know, we, we tend to get lost in the present. That's just the nature of who we are, and both as individuals and as society. And I think that, you know, the breadth of the perspective, which you're, you know, this, even just framing it as cybernetics, what you're doing is, is absolutely uh, fantastic. And so I want to delve more into it and, uh, and hopefully many others will as well. So w where can people go to find out more about uh, your work and the, uh, the school? Excellent. They can find us on the internet, the usual bit. If you type cybernetics and A-N-U, we will pop up. I suspect if you type cybernetics into the Googles at the moment, we, no, might, actually. we might still be the first thing that turns up. Uh, we have a newsletter you can subscribe to. We refresh the stuff on our website pretty often. You can see our various projects there. We're just going through a cycle of one-day short courses, which we're going to teach the first one of tomorrow. Ah! Or when by the time this launches, we will have already taught them. Ah! you can sign up for new ones on that same website uh and stay tuned because as we go into 2024 she says making the face oh god as we go into 2024 i imagine we're going to be even better about sharing our work and starting to investigate other ways of sharing the stuff we do and as is always the case i don't want to have these conversations in a vacuum with myself so if people think what's there is interesting feel free to reach out to us you can also find us on the socials these days uh instagram and LinkedIn are your best bets. We have abandoned X, which is a very strange thing. As someone who loved Twitter deeply for many, many years, as a school at least, we have found that to be a less productive site for us moving forward. Fair enough. All right. Thank you so much for your time and your insights, Genevieve. I love the work you're doing. Oh, thank you, Rasa. We're very happy and it's nice to get to see you. Thank you for listening to the show. If you really want to amplify your cognition, go to amplifyingcognition.com where you can access a trove of useful resources to make your mind better and more effective than ever before. If you liked this episode, please do help us be found by giving us a rating or review and subscribe if you want to hear more of this. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful day.